Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome back to Snowcast. I'm Jon Snow, and this week's guest is the filmmaker Carol Morley. Carol's a BAFTA-nominated writer and director. She was born in Stockport and spent her teens enjoying the Manchester music scene before moving to London, where she studied fine art, film and video at St Martin's College. Her 2000 documentary, The Alcohol Years, showed a fearlessness and an early interest in identity. Carol has since been described as part psychoanalyst, part detective, part social historian. And her films involve a lot of passion, research, and experimentation with form. Her latest release is called Typist, Artist, Pirate King. It stars Monica Dolan as the artist Audrey Amis, someone Carol believes should be widely known and brings vividly to life on a fictional road trip to Sunderland. Please note, this interview includes content about suicide that some may find triggering. Well, congratulations on your new film, Carol. We'll get to that in just a moment. But first, I want to find out a little bit more about you and your start in film. Were you an imaginative child? Did you daydream or like losing yourself in fictional worlds? You know, one thing I remember is when I was young, I, for Christmas, I wanted sellotape. That was my big present because there was never enough sellotape in the house. To do what? To make things. So I loved making things. So I just wanted to make things and use sellotape to build things and there was never any around. And so I remember that. I also remember, I've got a picture actually of when I insisted on taking my toys to Margate where we went every year from our holidays to stay with my grandma. And I have this picture of all my toys and they are kind of quite raggedy. But they, I think they were like my first cast, you know, mm. my first actors, because I imagined all their inner lives and I would create stories for them. So I think I was imaginative. I think maybe all children are, though, but I never thought I would, you know, grow up to make films, that's for sure. Well, sellotape announces a kind of <laughs> cut-and-paste life. <laughs> And uh, the life of an editor, but also building from nothing. I wanted to make things out of anything laying around. It was more kind of just cardboard left about and paper, trying to make something that didn't exist before. Your dad 
died when you were 11, and this would have been devastating. And the manner of his dying was horrible. He took his own life. He did. It was a very kind of happy time in the house because he'd been unemployed for a while and he had a new job. Came with a car, drove me to school, and that was the means of his death. So he he used the car to kill himself with carbon monoxide. And it was a happy day, you know, because that sense of a new beginning. Um, And I've subsequently learned that, that with people that are about to take their lives, they can often go through a period of release because they know what they're about to do. But it was a devastating moment, devastating, which would inform the rest of your life. Yes, because you, one, you're never going to see that person again. So when when you lose someone through tragedy and the sense of they're gone and never to be replaced or to be found again, I think it there's something inside of you that seeks that forever for the rest of your own life. Were you able to achieve what is so necessary, which is you? It was nothing to do with you, what he did. I think I know that now, but it, you still relive it in your mind because it's such a it's such a day of the last day of seeing your own father that you do relive it and wonder. And there's a point where my dad was 41 when he died, and there's a point when you know obviously I'm older than my dad now, and, and when you cross that threshold of being older than your parent and realizing how young he was and the responsibilities he had at that age, I sort of. Every every few years, I changed my relationship to what happened because of the age I become and the experiences I've had. There is a survivor guilt, as I now know the terminology, because you do wonder if on that day, I've always wondered if on that day, which, you know, I was the last person to see him in the morning when he dropped me off at school, I always wonder if I'd said something differently or done something differently. Even at 11, you kind of go through in your mind, what if I'd said this or done that? or known. And also, I, I, I think in what I've done, I've gravitated towards the dark side of life because of that. I think really because of that, but wanting to bring light. Do you think the inheritance in part was that you became a very astute observer and you needed to puzzle things out because, my God, you had to puzzle the death of your dad out? Yeah, I think it it certainly that is the bright side for me that what it gave me was a means of of empathy and but also like looking at things very closely and puzzling people out and knowing that what was on the surface of a person um was unlikely to be what was going on beneath them. So I think it's really given me that curiosity in people and and lives and how lives are, are lived. You wrote about your loss in a semi-autobiographical book seven miles out. But there are two narrators, and you also hear your mother's point of view. Was this based on conversations, or were you putting yourself in your mum's shoes at a point when you were closer in age? Well, the sad thing in a way is the manner of my dad's death, the suicide, meant in many ways that we we just never spoke about it. So I never had a conversation with my mum about what he'd done. Or, in fact, it was very painful to even mention his name. There were no photographs of him. It was almost like what he did destroyed so much of his memory as well and and the ability to talk about it. Did she remove his photos? There weren't any to begin with, really. We weren't that kind of family, but there was never, like, one (laughs) place there. Mm. So I feel that he was missing. He was missing. And so in the book that I wrote, I gave a voice to my mum that she'd never had. She, She had died by that point. 
and it was really an interior life and trying to understand not only the teenage mind, which is in the book, but also the mind of somebody widowed at a young age of 40 and put her experience. So it was a way of me being able to understand her experience. I hate to be um, personal when interviewing anyone else, but actually you trigger something in me because my dad kept something called an ego book, which was all about him. Endless photographs of things he'd done and this, that, and the other. We were involved sometimes. But the contrast with what you're telling me about what your dad left behind, which was not very much. No, it wasn't very much at all. And I found a card that he'd written to my mum in this very sort of flowery handwriting. And I found that really beautiful because I thought, actually, that card has got his DNA on it. <laughs> and, and I thought that there's very little left behind of him. The 70s when he died, people didn't really own much. Certainly we didn't. So there was very little of his belongings, if at all any. So that card he wrote to my mum was very important. It's interesting what you said about your dad. <laughs> wow, the ego, but... Written in large letters in front of this vast book. And did that, do you think that illuminated something for you about him or do you think it was him presenting himself to the world? I think it illuminated me about things about him and his self-centeredness. But we're here to talk about yes, you. Yes, OK. I'm, <laughs> I'm more interested in other people. So. <laughs> Why did you choose the semi-autobiographical form? Did you want a little more distance from the subject when you wrote your book? I think I'm really interested in the intersection of the factual and the fictional because I think we fictionalise our lives and mm. we fictionalise other people's lives. So to go towards factual and memoir didn't feel quite right for the story. So I wanted to create something that entered the territory of fictionalization and poetry and using words in ways that maybe weren't used at the time. So it felt like a better endeavor to tell the story in a fictionalized way. Do you find it easy to go back to that book and read bits again or do you not touch it? No, well I have touched it because I got um, a commission to adapt it into a film oh, so wow. I went <laughs> so I went back to it and uh, going back to it was like picking off a scab because in a way when you create a book or a piece of work it seals something it feels like very constructive so you can sort of feel like you're leaving something behind somewhat uh, but then when I went back to adapt my own book then it was like picking off the scab. But it's extraordinary because you were having to recreate a man that had been so important to you and whose loss had been so painful. It can't have been an easy task. No, it's not because the absence mythologizes somebody. and and But then you're trying to bring them back to the real world and to an ordinary world. Whereas in, in my mind, my dad became a mythology. So you're trying to keep the idea of mythology in some ways, but also to ground someone in a, in a real world. In some way, you had to sort of resurrect him within yes. your mind. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And I wonder if that is something I keep doing <laughs> with all my films. And possibly it's what we all do, what we all do, which is why memory is a beautiful thing, because mm. you, are, you can resurrect moments of your life or the people that were in your life that aren't with you. So I think it's a very important process. You left Manchester for London in your early 20s and took A-levels in film and photography. Had you considered filmmaking as a career before this point? No. So I left school at 16 and, and being in Manchester, it was like a pop cultural centre. We all thought so. What an uh, advertisement for leaving school at 16. <laughs> I know. <laughs> 
I remember at careers in school, it was the time it was, they said, if you work hard, you might get a job. It won't be a job you want, but you might get one. So there was very, the school I went to was big, comprehensive. There was very little ambition. But the ambition for all the people I knew and the people around me was music because you you knew somebody that had been on top of the pops because you hung out on the Manchester nightclub scene and gig scene. And so that's what I did. So I was in bands. And then when I was about 23 and living in London, I'd done lots of different kinds of jobs. And I thought I have to do something. And that's when I did A-level film and a part-time course in photography and video. And in that evening course, I met an inspirational teacher called Bev Zorcock, who was wearing a denim jacket with Sid Vicious on it and changed <laughs> my life. And Because you need those teachers. I think you need to meet people that fundamentally see something in you that you feel seen. And she made me feel like I could write an essay. I'd never really written an essay at school. So I started writing. I realized I could write essays. And then I went to Central St. Martins in the end to study fine art film. So Sid Vicious is somewhere <laughs> near the core of this creative spirit. <laughs> exactly. I think it's that. And also it was, you know, it wasn't leaving school, knowing what I wanted to do. I'd never, ever thought of doing film. It didn't. It just, just seemed outside of all possibilities, really. I mean, just to cut back a bit, what was it like to get accepted into Central St. Martin's, a really world-renowned art college? It must have been sorely a struggle to get there. It was, but it was once I started that A-level and the photography course, they were really supportive. And I felt the beauty of having a life where you knew what you were going to do one day after another. And yeah, I remember the interview like it was yesterday for St. Martin's and being in that room, being interviewed by four people, getting the acceptance letter, knowing for the next three years my life was on track with purpose. And going older, because I was about 24 when I started, you really, you really are committed like nothing. Nothing else because you know what it's like in the real world. <laughs> when you use the, the phrase on track, your life on track, how far off track had it ever been? Well, one of the things I did after I left college was to make a film called The Alcohol Years, which was retracing what I call my scurrilous youth when I was a teenager. So it's very off track. It's very off track. And when I made that film, people were like, we thought you might have died. It's amazing that you're still here. Someone actually said, if I thought you were going to finish the film, I wouldn't have been in it. So making the alcohol years once I was able to make films, going back to being around 15, 16 and on, it was a real messy time. Did you find making this film discomposing or did you approach it with a sense of objective detachment? I never am objectively detached. No. <laughs> I don't believe in that. It's hard um, when, you, when you're part of the story anyway. I guess the kind of films I make, and which is why I veer towards fictional, is an objective reality I think is almost impossible. I really admire what you've done in your work because you've had that and it's been a genius. Let's be steady on this. <laughs> I mean, yours is a genuinely creative thing. I'm working within a, or was working within a very fixed framework of behaviour. There was no fixed behavioural <laughs> limit to what you wanted to do. No, I suppose not. But I do admire the objective ways of doing things. So mm. it's not to sort of undermine that as a tactic or as a very important part of life. But I do think in what I was doing and what I do, it's much more going in with an intrepid desire to, to reveal something through a personal connection. And so making the alcohol years, which is 20 years ago, I did that now, 
that I made it, it was very much about I will use myself to elicit stories about the time. And in fact, ostensibly it was a film about me, but it did become about a film about other people and other people's attitudes and particularly probably a story about male attitudes to young women. And if people had thought that's what they were coming to talk about, they would never have turned up. So it was a way into something. And I always think with that film, I would never have gone back without a camera. I'm so interested in this journey because, after all, it begins with a defuddled teenager. And somehow you were able to use that experience in a non-fuddled way not that long afterwards. Yeah, it seemed a long time afterwards, but when I look back, it wasn't that long. It was maybe 13 years or something like that. But it seemed a long time, and I seemed a very entirely different person. And I, I do believe you become different people in your life, and you can learn from all the people that you were, but you can shift into being someone else. And it was interesting going back, being in control and having purpose, and that made the experience that was difficult beautiful in a way. Were you therefore kind of your own therapist? Well, I, you know, I actually think looking back at the, the, before I made the alcohol years, I'd reached a point in my life, I'd graduated from college. I'd reached a point in my life. I was sort of about early thirties. And I thought, I don't know if I can go on anymore. I actually am finding it a struggle. And at that point I did go to a therapist, a counselor. I did start that. And I think that unlocks something to be able to go back. So I think at that point I was, I'd always been very, very anti-therapy and anti-counselling. I'd always been very anti it. But at that point, I did feel like I have to try it. And it really, really helped me. But actually, your therapist was the writer within you. Yeah. <laughs> well, in, in that way, I don't make my work because it's therapeutic, but it definitely has a therapeutic outcome, which is that something that didn't exist, that does exist, that manages to channel things and create things is a therapy. It definitely is. In between early film projects, you kept yourself going by teaching. Did you ever think about taking on commercial projects or have you always had a firm sense of the work that you want to make? So teaching was really good because I learned from the students, I learned from the preparation and I would discover new films to show them. So that was part of my education too. And going into the commercial world, it doesn't happen to everyone. It's, you know, I don't want to generalise, but I, I saw people going into the commercial world, say commercials or pop videos because it, you could earn a living in a quicker way than making feature films. And you could see people getting stuck there. It was very difficult then to get out. For me, it was telling a story is important, but how it's told is very, very important. And so I found in life that people often want you for what you can do. But when you get there, they want you to do what they want you to do. <laughs> so for me, it was like, that's what I wanted to avoid. So I've stuck to my guns. I've worked with my producer, Cario Cannon, for years. And we have a production company. So we've always pursued the stories and the way we want to tell them. This journey is so fascinating because you went from a period of complete chaos, <laughs> I, I imagine, because yes. anybody who drinks a lot and all that is going to have a troubled time, yeah. to the incredibly ordered and creative business. Well, I just thought of it now. I go back to the child with sellotape. 
that I think there was something about when I was young that was very ordered. I think every child wants stability and wants boundaries and they were just ripped apart. And so I think the recovery of trying to get back to that took a long time. And in the meantime, the kind of life I lived, which was really promiscuous, it was just a really messy time and a, a very dangerous time of time on the edge. I think to then return to sellotape and to, to sticking things together and looking at things unformed and hmm. making a form out of them has saved me, definitely. Well, let's explore your creativity then. Can you tell me about the news story that inspired your 2011 film, Dreams of a Life. Wow, yes. So Dreams of a Life, it's a documentary, a creative documentary. It has Zowie Ashton in, there's Reconstruction. And I was travelling on the underground and there was a copy of The Sun beside me because I never bought it. I'd like that on record. What a comfort. (laughs) (laughs) I'd like that on record. But if ever seen, I would read it. Page seven, I'm pretty sure it was page seven, half a page, a photograph to go with it of uh, the outside of a bedsit in Wood Green. And the headline was Skeleton of Joyce Found with Television Still On. And Joyce had been there for nearly three years in her flat. my God. And the information that was there was scant because this was the days before social media, so she hadn't put herself on social media. They couldn't even get a photograph of her, hence the photo of the bedsit. Now it would be a photo from social media Mm. of somebody. But as soon as I saw it travelling on the underground, that news story, I looked at it and I went, Joyce, I'm going to make a film about you, whether I find out anything about you or not. And that was my pact right then and there. And it took about five years to raise the money to piece the story together. But it was at that point, no one was interested in it, that story beyond there, because I met the local reporters from the Wood Green local paper He had tried to sell the story to the Evening Standard for £50 because he'd been at the inquest. He knew what had happened at Joyce Vincent's inquest and the Evening Standard didn't want the story for £50. So it it didn't seem an important story. And so for me, it was like probably one of the most important stories of the century, you know, because it said so much about the fractured lives that we live. So in fact, after I made it, I did go on a... Channel 4 News. <laughs> did you really? <laughs> I did. Uh, did I interview you? <laughs> no, sadly oh, not. Dear. I was hoping so. <laughs> so it was an exploration. It began as a portrait of Joyce trying to find out people that knew her. And I traced colleagues and ex-boyfriends and friends. I did trace the family, although they weren't in it in the end because they felt it it was too difficult. And I understood that. So it became a film in a way about friendship. So did the exploration of the story almost become even more important than the making of the film. I think that the film is the exploration Mm. and the people in it were honest and able to create really a bigger picture of how our lives can fall between Mm. the cracks. So it really was a kind of insight into... Society. It was. And and that is what I felt was the tribute to Joyce Vincent. It revealed her life and how somebody that 
was so forgotten for so long. At 38, she died. And then I began to unpick it and you connected her to Nelson Mandela. She met Nelson Mandela. She met Gil Scott Heron. She met all these amazing people in her life and had lived an amazing life. Her life was not a tragedy by any means. Were you able to explain how she did that? Yeah, so I wrote to everybody I could. I'd speak to someone. They said, oh, I think she knew Betty Wright in America. I wrote to Betty Wright, who was a famous singer. And Betty got back in touch with me and said, oh, this this person used to go out with Joyce and then that's when all these reveals came that she'd had a night in a limousine with Stevie Wonder. Oh my God. <laughs> so what people had written off as somebody that maybe had ultimately died forgotten because she'd lived a terrible life was completely the opposite. So it was that discovery of a life, of her life, that went beyond what we would assume, what people might assume. It's therefore no surprise that you were described as a detective filmmaker. You've just spelt out exactly how that works. But at the same time, does it leave enough space for creativity? I think there's different areas. So, for instance, with Dreams of Life and Joyce Vincent, mm. one of the things I did was spend about two weeks in the records office looking at electoral registers. And so literally with the ruler, looking in the areas she'd lived in, in the boroughs, just to find her name. Because if I found her name, it would have the other people that she'd lived with on the electoral register. And I did find people that way. Very laborious. But if I'd given that a researcher, I feel like I would have missed something about the process. So for me, the process behind the creativity leads to the creativity. In a sense, you become a detective without any of the obligations to society or indeed to the guilty or the innocent, and yet you come out with the most amazing story. Yes, because I really didn't have an agenda. You know, I had no agenda. And although I think it does tell a wider story about society, that was not the starting point. The starting point was always to create a tribute to Joyce Vincent, who deserved not to be ignored. Much like the alcohol years, this film doesn't give answers and doesn't apportion blame. Is this space important to you? Do you want to leave people thinking? Yes, I don't want to nail things down. I want to leave contradictions within the process so that people can make their own minds up. And certainly with Dreams of Life, some people would be siding with one person I interviewed that knew Joyce and others with another and, and people would build their own story within it. So it's always to leave space for other people to intersect and not say we should blame this person or that organisation. I don't want to do any of that because I feel it's reductive. But it's such an amazing gift. Uh, being a bit of an egotist myself, I find it very hard to leave myself out of the story, but you do. Yeah, I feel that I, I'm i a facilitator and a conduit to things unfolding. And I feel if you're too set in what you want to achieve from the beginning, you will reduce everybody to that, to being a soundbite or to being, a, you know, a quote in an essay. So I'm, I'm deeply curious about other people, very definitely. You're listening to Snowcast with me, John Snow, and we'll be right back after this. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Let's get up to date with artist, typist, pirate king. But before we do that, let's quickly hear the trail. I'll be writing a letter of complaint about your late arrival. Yeah, you too. The Queen. That's more like it. Any changes we should be aware of? Your appearance has slipped to an all-time low. This stuff. That's my art. I used to be in the kitchen sink school of realism, but now I'm avant-garde and misunderstood. You need to drive myself and my art to this gallery before the deadline. Must be close by now. It is 280 miles precisely. Sunderland. You said it was local. It is to me. Well, but let's get a move on, heave ho. I'm king of everything! <laughs> Thelma and Louise, eh? I think you need to see Dorothy. Your sister. Oh, she'd love that, Dorothy would. Me turning up with my psychiatric nurse. Oh, Audrey. You know what's funny? You've got me thinking in pictures now. That's your aura? Somehow, you know, that's the way I feel inside. Audrey! Hello. I've been seeing you, Audrey. I believed I was going to achieve recognition. You had such an exceptional gift for art, Audrey. I'd like to buy more of your work. Vincent van Gogh only sold one painting in his lifetime. I've outdone it. The world is crying out for more magic. Art makes life worth living. I'm glad I came with you. You must be bonkers. Your latest film is another passion project, one sparked by the discovery of an archive at the Welcome Collection. Can you tell me about the riches you found and how much time you spent digging your way through them? (laughs) (laughs) So I was really lucky. A few years ago, 2016, I got a screenwriting fellowship at Welcome. And within that, I could do anything. I started to look at DNA and facial recognition. It's the biggest scientific charity in the world welcome and they do so much and have so much and somebody mentioned to me one day they said we have the wrappers here of a woman who collected the wrappers of everything she ate every day and I said (laughs) and I'm like I need to know who she is and I want to see them 
They didn't know the name. I was put to the archivist. And so I began to look at the Audrey Amos archive. And Audrey had lived in Clapham for 50 years. She was from Sunderland. In the 50s, she'd gone to study art at the Royal Academy. She'd studied painting. At the point she was there towards her final year, she'd had a breakdown and was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. So the collection was taken on as patient art. And it was enormous. It was these 86 enormous boxes. Her diaries, her letters, her letter logs, all sorts of things. The scrapbooks of the rappers, which were annotated with her daily life. So I, I became absolutely fascinated with Audrey Amos and contrary to Joyce Vincent, who'd left nothing behind, that it was all destroyed because of contamination in her flat. Audrey had so much left behind. But you are an obsessive when it comes to unearthing information. It's certainly a direction I feel compelled to go in. And with uh, the Audrey Amos archive, I went to the Royal Academy archive where I found really interesting things. I found a letter from the head of the curator of the school to Audrey's psychiatrist saying, I sometimes wonder if Audrey's lack of looks have contributed to her breakdown. I mean, so that was revealing something about the 1950s attitudes. And I met her friends and neighbours. So the woman that everyone would cross the road to avoid, the archive had her whole life really in the collection, became my companion and friend for many years. I think it would be about six years. But these are incredible companions. I mean, they are very <laughs> complex people. Or do you believe they are actually typical of society? I think we're all complex. There's so much possibility in all of us. And I think when we become socialised in the world, we often are hiding all that complexity. I feel like your dad with his ego book was putting it out there. <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, so I feel that we are all complex. And I think you could take any person and create an amazing story and film and tribute to their life. I think it's the complexity of people that either through choice or through being pushed there live on the margins. And I think those are the people that fascinate me because I want to bring them to the centre because I just don't think they've had their due. Audrey was a great artist as well. And so I wanted to make sure that people knew about her work. Now, Audrey spent time in psychiatric institutions and you've explored depression and psychogenic illness in your work. But was it a challenge to capture her perception of the world and her frustration at how she was treated? It wasn't a challenge to understand Audrey Amos because of what she left behind, but the challenge was to find the form of the film. Hence, Typist Artist Pirate King is a road movie. <laughs> and so it felt that to put her life on the road and to pay tribute to her love of travel, but also something Audrey Amos had. In the diary, she would talk a lot about mistaking people for other people. So she would see you, for instance, John, and think you were her old headmistress. <laughs> and she would truly, truly believe that. And I began to think, well, why don't I accept that and not like resist it? And for her, her daily life and the people she met became the memories of her past. And that's what I do in the film. So on the road trip, she meets people along the way and they stand in for someone from her past. So you yeah. truly plugged in. Yes, because for me, it's like I'm not going to impose a form as a director, as a filmmaker. I want to find the story within what I'm looking at. Her psychiatric nurse, Sandra, is a very sympathetic character. Why did you choose to take Audrey on a road trip with this fictional character? Well, Audrey in her diaries did write a lot about the psychiatric world and she would write about her psychiatric nurses. But I also, of course, did speak to psychiatric nurses and psychiatrists. And the thing that kept coming up was the 
way they'd gone into their profession with these ideals and then had quickly discovered how difficult it was to keep those ideals with lack of funding and all sorts of pressures upon them to deliver what they had to deliver. So for me, it seemed that Audrey on the road a mental health user on the road with her psychiatric nurse, those conversations they could have, which were a tribute to Audrey's diaries, but also gave a sense of importance to the psychiatric nurse. Sometimes I think it's like smuggling ideas in. Would you like to have interviewed her? Because that was impossible, I'd say no. But I have had dreams about her and I have interviewed Audrey in my <laughs> dreams. So I kind of have. So maybe that was wish fulfillment. Monica Dolan is a wonderful actor, but you get such a vivid sense of Audrey through your film. Have you found that people are falling in love with Audrey? Monica Dolan is a genius actor, one of the greatest actors of our times, really. And she brings Audrey to life in all her complexity, all her nuances, which is fantastic. I wanted to write a screenplay where at the beginning, Audrey is the kind of person she was in life where people would cross the road to avoid her. But by the end, you might really like her. You might begin to understand her. And that's what I wanted to do. And because I'm doing this massive Q&A tour going around the country with the film, it's really bringing out a sense of what the film has done. And it's allowed people to see themselves in it. It's allowed people to see their relatives in it. It's allowed nurses to feel recognised in what they do. So it's doing a lot of connecting and people are really into Audrey and her art. It's brilliant. You spoke about the project on Radio 4 back in 2016 and it, it was a deliberate statement of intent. Does this attitude help you and your longtime producer, Cairo Cannon, get things over the line? Perhaps we all need to plant a few more flags. <laughs> well, certainly going public. I understand, you know, films take a long time, but in 2016, I went on the film programme and I was the first one to ever go on, apparently, and say I would be making a film. Like you say, putting a flag in and saying I'm going to do it. And it does propel you. It would be a public humiliation not to make it then. Starting a great debate about where she's going. <laughs> yeah. Well, in fact, Seven Miles Out, the book that I put into a script, I just went on World Service saying we were making that next year, so I'd better get on. <laughs> You're obviously very determined in your research and in getting funding. Do you have to be very tenacious to be an independent filmmaker? All the independent filmmakers I know, we're a big gang in a way. And I feel that there is a relentlessness. You have to believe. You can get very low, but you do have to believe it's possible. And I do think what propels you and keeps you going is the belief in the story that you're telling and the way you want to tell it. And that is the difference, I think. But the tenaciousness is uh, top has to be number one, because <laughs> it's so hard. <laughs> the Oscar-winning filmmaker Jane Campion was an executive producer on this. Did her involvement help push doors open? And is it important to help lift up other independent filmmakers? I think, I mean, Martin Scorsese too goes on to projects and exec produces them and that really helps. So people that have the name and the reputation and the greatness... <laughs> can really help. I actually met Jane Campion on Radio 4 
she was a phone-in because I went on to do a programme about Jane. I was a guest to talk about one of my favourite films and I chose Sweetie, her film, and she phoned in. And then <laughs> after that, she, yeah, she phoned That's in. Amazing. She went, it was amazing. And she went, you're my heroine too, Carol. I'm like crying in the studio. <laughs> it's one of the nicest things someone had arranged for me. And then she wrote to me afterwards and said, I really do believe in you. Let's keep in touch. And then when we were having difficulty raising the finance for Type Starts Pirate King, I wrote to her and she was in the middle of editing Power the dog I sent her the script and the outline and she came back saying yep I'll be on it and that galvanized me in Cairo to carry on and I think it also obviously helps open doors but it was generous of her too very generous and understanding like mm. the difficulty and what it is to make a film at any any stage any level can you tell me about Muriel Box is she another unsung artist who who's about to become a passion project. Yes, yeah, so Muriel Box is still to this day Britain's most prolific woman filmmaker. Really? Yeah. And she made 13 feature films, which is Sally Potter's almost caught mm. up. She made more feature films than any other woman and has been sorely ignored. It was only recently that she had a, a retrospective at BFI Southbank in London. I did a radio show about her. I love radio. It's the ultimate medium. It's beautiful. Fabulous. People say you see pictures better on the mm, radio. Mm. Anyway, so Muriel Box, I got very invested with her. I met the family. So I'm developing a project about her. She was very famous in her day, but then got pushed to the sidelines. The film critic Mark Commode is a big fan of your work. He's called you one of the UK's finest filmmakers. How important are the reviews? You have to stand by your project no matter what anybody thinks of it afterwards because I think of Night of the Hunter by Charles Lawton. The critics hated it and so did the audiences. Now it's always in people's top ten lists. So I feel when you make a film, you can't live by that idea of what the audience think or what the critics think. You have to know you've made something your way in the right way. But on the other hand, when you haven't got a big publicity and advertising budget, the reviews are really crucial. You don't need me to say to you that filmmaking is a very complex industry. (laughs) I, I, I wonder... What keeps you sane? I mean, the fact is you're under unbelievable pressure because very often you're running up against running out of finance and heaven knows what, and people who suddenly leave a project or suddenly become available. How do you stay sane? I think the sane comes from knowing that if you just persist and keep thinking of why you're making the film or doing what you're doing and keep persisting with that because of the ultimate story at the end of it. And I think it is a life. It's not a job. It is a life. It is a way of being. So I think that keeps you sane. There is a certain way of keeping grounded. Have the films that you have made been what have really made you the confident woman that you are? Or were you confident all along? Well, I didn't public speak till I was about 38. I used to be terrified of public speaking and then I thought I have to do it. I'd be confident going in a pub and talking to a complete stranger or meeting people, but that formal idea. So I think now I've finally come around so I can do public speaking, I can speak out. But I think that Dreams of a Life, for example, was very, very difficult to make. People didn't think anyone would want to see that film. So all these years later, it's still seen as a a valuable film, a film that opens up a lot of discussion and connection for people. So I think that does galvanise you and give you confidence that the films I've made survive. Do you have any unfulfilled ambitions? 
In terms of filmmaking, the ambition would be to make films more frequently. (laughs) (laughs) I would like to make more, more frequently. I have three projects that I want to make. I have gone on world service to say I'll be making Seven Miles Out next year. So that's a film about a young girl growing up in the wake of her father's suicide and finding the power of music that keeps her surviving and gives her a sense of being in the world. I'm very excited about, I'm developing a a time-travelling witch story set in 1650, so early modern England. Uh, And I've actually written it for actors I know. So I've never written for actors before. And then I've got the mural box film, so I'm sort of developing that, and that would be... um, hopefully honouring the way she made films, which were really quite interestingly, creatively experimental. It's interesting because I'm old enough to remember the state being quite involved in filmmaking. And that's almost out of the window now. Do you do you think it's possible for the state to play a role? Well, in the arts, absolutely. Because I've been going on this tour of cinemas with the film. And you see cinemas on their knees Mm. and cinemas that have have lost Arts Council funding. Uh, Luckily, we have the British Film Institute that invest in cinemas, but their funding gets cut. So I think that the role art and culture play in society goes way beyond people being able to see a film or see a piece of art. It's the connection. I feel like if you don't finance the arts and creativity and ways of people being in the world, we're going to have a very difficult future. What advice would you give to someone who has aspirations to be a filmmaker, but is lacking in the very thing you abound in, confidence, who therefore thinks that it's an unattainable dream? I think it can apply to anything in life, whether you want to be a filmmaker or a writer or a painter, which is to not worry about what you're supposed to be, but to start with looking at what you want to be and something inside yourself that you need to put out there and to follow that. And the other things like, for instance, public speaking is an important part of filmmaking, but I came to that late. I just think it's like confidence is overrated. You probably need it in the end, but you don't need to start with that. Carol Morley, I feel tempted to call you Carol Optimist. Optimism is a political act. (laughs) Well, you use it brilliantly, and it's a joy to talk with you. Thank you very much indeed. It's an honour, John. It's an honour. That was filmmaker Carol Morley. Her new film about Audrey Amos is called Typist, Artist, Pirate King, and you can find links to that and Carol's other work in the episode description. I'm John Snow, and I'd like to say thank you for listening to Snowcast. Please subscribe to my podcast on your platform of choice and spread the word. Tell your friends. Goodbye for now. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.